Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. Pregnancy is complicated and confusing. But what if there was a way you could get evidence-based information, explore your values and preferences for birthing a child, and have someone to hold your hand along the entire way? And then also with COVID vaccines available, should you get it during pregnancy, should you not? Wouldn't it be great to have a trusted source to guide you through this process? Don't go anywhere. The House Call podcast is going to go in-depth on shared decision-making in pregnancy and childbirth. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call podcast. I'm Dr. Asha Shahjahan. We're here to help you and your families live smarter and healthier lives. Today we're going to talk about shared decision-making and why it's so important in pregnancy and childbirth. We'll also talk about the COVID-19 vaccine and talk about if it's right for you during your pregnancy. Joining us today is Dr. Kurt Wharton, an OBGYN and medical director of the Family Birth Center at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. He's also a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. Dr. Wharton, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm very excited about sharing what I know with you and the, today's listeners. Yeah, and we are so excited to have you because we have a lot to talk about. I mean, we are in a pandemic. Uh, people are, you know, scared and confused, but we're going to talk about something that is pretty joyous or pregnancy. So, you know, pregnancy is normally a joyous time in a woman's life, but it can also be a little scary and nerve wracking. And, you know, Dr. Google has a lot of confusing information out there that's readily available for people on their fingertips. So, you know, what advice do you have for someone who wants to get pregnant? Like, what are the steps they should take when they're planning to get pregnant? Well, in order to have as healthy an outcome as possible, it's critical that you be as healthy as possible when you start. Mm -hmm. And I encourage everyone who's considering pregnancy to really optimize their health and their nutrition. There's up to a 30-pound weight gain expected in pregnancy. So it's good not to be overweight when you start, nor is it healthy to be underweight. We do want you to gain 30 pounds slowly and steadily, over the nine to 10 months of pregnancy. What we also know that women who are obese and women who have diabetes or have obesity and diabetes can pass these traits on not only to the next generation, but it can impact the subsequent generation. Mm -hmm. So we know that women who have obesity and diabetes are much more likely to give birth to children who will develop obesity and diabetes. If a patient is diabetic or pre-diabetic, would you recommend them being on, you know, a medication like metformin if they're pre-diabetic beforehand? And, you know, because a lot of people in my practice are afraid of taking medications when they're trying to conceive. I absolutely encourage women to take a medication if they're pre-diabetic. We know that optimal control of one's blood sugar is critical in the health of the pregnancy. When women have uncontrolled blood sugar, it's harder to get pregnant. The risk of miscarriage is much, much greater. And the chance of having other complications is increased as well. Those concerns far outweigh any concerns about a side effect from the medication. So you were talking about the importance of nutrition and, you know, having a proper weight, not being underweight, not being overweight. But what about things like supplements? What are your thoughts there? We do know that if women take supplement of folic acid, just a mere 400 micrograms, the smallest dose sold, 
If a woman takes that while she's trying to conceive, and definitely through the first seven weeks of pregnancy, 60 to 70% of all birth defects can be eliminated. Hmm. That is a magical supplement. Yeah. We also know that if the folic acid is continued through pregnancy, it reduces her chance of developing diabetes of pregnancy, what we call gestational diabetes, as well as possibly reducing her risk of developing high blood pressure. There are many women who are anemic when they become pregnant. Pregnancy requires an increase of blood, 40% more blood within the first seven weeks of pregnancy, and that requires iron. If a woman starts her pregnancy being deficient in iron, she'll feel very poorly very quickly. Yeah, so folic acid, iron, and these are things that are common in prenatal vitamins, correct? That is correct. There are many things in prenatal vitamins, many of which are beneficial, many are not. Mm. So we know, and the recommendations of the World Health Organization right now restrict supplementation to folic acid and iron, and truthfully, iron when indicated. Got it. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, many prenatal vitamins, actually the most common prenatal vitamins sold are gummy prenatal vitamins. They're delicious, yes. easy to swallow, but they don't contain iron. So women have to be careful if they are found to be iron deficient. Gummy prenatal vitamins won't be helpful for them. Yeah. So see your PCP, maybe get your blood drawn, get an annual physical, see what your blood levels are. If you're iron deficient, start taking iron supplements. And if you're not, then just stick with the folic acid. That's it. Be prepared. Okay. So let's say you now you've kind of optimized, you've decided that you want to get pregnant, you're on your folic acid, um, you know, you've at the optimal weight, and then ta-da, you know, success and you're pregnant. So now that you're pregnant, what are the next steps? And then how does shared decision-making play a role in that? The, those are very good questions. The next step is to find a healthcare provider that you feel comfortable with. You want to have a partner in the progress of your pregnancy, and that's where shared decision-making comes in. Historically, the interaction between patients and physicians was very different. It's what we call more of a paternalistic attitude. Mm -hmm. Often a patient would present to her health care provider with a problem, and if it's a physician she's seen, the physician would interview her, take a history perform an examination, perhaps perform some diagnostic tests, and then reach a diagnosis. Treatment was then offered, but usually not with options and not with really the patient be given a choice. Well, since the 80s, we've really tried to turn that around, and we use a process called shared decision-making because, after all, patients are individuals. They deserve to have their autonomy respected. Everyone comes into a physician's office with their own personal beliefs, their cultural beliefs, and their thoughts and their reactions are formed by their past experiences. We're all different, and that has to be respected. Now, with shared decision-making, it requires that the physician or the midwife in pregnancy uh, provide thorough education. As a physician, we do many dramatic things that are just glamorized on television, but one of our primary roles really is to educate our patients, to tell them how to improve their own health so they can be active. They can be a true member of the team. Yeah, so it's more of a discussion, really. So instead of like, here, take this, do this, um, it's more like, okay, what are your beliefs? What are the things that you are, what, what's most important to you? And how can we make this the most pleasant experience for you possible? That's correct. 
So what are what are some examples of shared decision making in pregnancy? Like, can you, like, I mean, we talked about beliefs and things like that, but maybe people are wondering, okay, what is it that I need to discuss with my doctor? Well, we start out with a discussion of nutrition, exercise, sleep, other behaviors that we think are beneficial in pregnancy. More critically, we talk with our patients about the importance of vaccinations. Now, in the past, we've found that flu vaccination is extremely important during pregnancy. Despite what many people believe, pregnant women are at greatest risk each flu season of succumbing to the effects of the flu. The concern about pertussis or whooping cough had disappeared for a long time with childhood vaccinations, but it's come back. And it's extremely dangerous for a newborn to be exposed to the pertussis. We believe that pregnant women should be vaccinated around 28 weeks of pregnancy with the pertussis vaccine. It's called the Tdap vaccine. It's tetanus diphtheria pertussis. But we find that allows the mother to develop antibodies which cross the placenta and enter the baby's blood. So when the baby is born, it has this passive immunity which will last for the several months that are required before the baby can start to receive its own vaccination. We think this is very safe, but people have concerns about vaccines, so it's important to discuss. There's an awful lot of misinformation that's spread mouth to mouth and on the internet. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So I think that's, I'm glad that you brought up the vaccines, and we're going to get into the COVID vaccine in a minute. But I think the perception is, is, yeah, sure, I'll take a vaccine, but I'm so scared to do it during pregnancy because is it going to harm my baby? And what you're saying is that actually it can protect your baby and not only protect the mother, but protect the baby as well. That's correct. For a long time, they thought that some of the preservatives in vaccine were responsible for autism. Mm -hmm. And this was publicized internationally. Well, it was found out to be false. And the person who's transmitting this information, I'm not quite sure what his agenda was, but it was somewhat evil. Okay, so for the flu vaccine, is this something that you should get before you're pregnant, during pregnancy? Does it matter what stage? I mean, you were saying pertussis is at 28 weeks about. So what about um, the flu vaccine? The flu vaccine should be given each year during the regular time, usually starting late summer, early fall. Its effectiveness by the time we reach this time of year and early spring is really minimal. But it is important that a woman receive a vaccine each year as the virus changes each year. So about the season is usually like September to maybe February, you would say? I would say. Okay, great. So now, okay, since we talked about vaccines, I'm going to have to just jump into the, the COVID vaccine. You know, I do a lot of, you know, vaccine advocacy, town halls, you know, and the biggest question is, is, is this going to affect my fertility for someone who's not pregnant yet? Then the other question that comes up is, you know, is this going to affect my menstrual cycles? And then, you know, the third thing is, is, is this safe in pregnancy and breastfeeding? There's a lot of misinformation, mistruths that have linked the vaccination with infertility, and it's absolutely not true. The official statement of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists is the recommendation that all eligible women receive the vaccine who are pregnant, as well as all women who are breastfeeding, as well as all women who are planning to become pregnant soon. We know that the vaccine is a messenger RNA vaccine, so the virus is not actively transmitted through the vaccine. Fetal cells are also not transmitted through the vaccine. That's another common misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. So we think everyone, with the rare exception of that person who is unable to receive the flu vaccine, many medications, should absolutely receive the vaccination. What we do know is that if a woman does not receive the vaccination, she's at increased risk. 
At the beginning of the pandemic, we thought that pregnant women would be at increased risk more than the rest of the population as we see each flu season. That has not been true, but the pregnancy can be adversely affected. At Beaumont Royal Oak Hospital, we deliver close to 7,000 babies each year. Wow. (laughs) During the current pandemic, we have had our share. Right now, 8% of the pregnant women who come to our labor and deliver unit we find to be COVID positive, and many of them are sick and end up fighting for their lives. Wow. We haven't lost a mother yet, but it's been close, and we're not through with this yet, and I can't predict what the future will bring. But what we have found and what my colleagues across the country have found is that women who do not get vaccinated and get sick with COVID are at much higher risk of being admitted to the hospital, of much higher risk of requiring supplemental oxygen, much higher risk of being intubated, and they are at much greater risk of delivering their baby at a significantly premature date. Yeah, I think, you know, just... The whole process of childbirth itself can be overwhelming, and to complicate that with a COVID infection just sounds like a nightmare. In terms of antibodies, so many pregnant women, they've delivered, and they're saying, okay, if I have the COVID vaccine when I'm breastfeeding my child, will those antibodies you know, be given to my child, and then will my child be protected from COVID? I'm so glad you mentioned that, because the answer is yes. Once the vaccination starts to have its effect, the body produces IgM antibodies followed by IgG antibodies, and these IgG antibodies cross the placenta and enter the baby. And we are doing studies across the country, including a study at Royal Oak, Mm -hmm. where we're measuring the antibodies in the umbilical cord blood of the babies. And again, babies are at risk. They are born with a naked immune system. We have to do everything we can to protect them. Yeah. And then what do you also think about spouses, family members, and that kind of thing as well in terms of getting the COVID vaccination and also the flu and the Tdap? Certainly everyone needs to be vaccinated for the flu each year. Now, in the past, we used to encourage all family members to receive the Tdap vaccine because we are administering the Tdap vaccine after delivery. Now that we recommend the Tdap vaccine be given 12 to 8 weeks before the due date, that isn't quite as mandatory that we insist that family members and friends be vaccinated. But when it comes to COVID, everybody above the age of 16 needs to be vaccinated. So here's my other question about the COVID vaccine that people are concerned about. You know, the thought is it's, you know, relatively new. And how do we know that years down the line, this isn't going to affect, you know, either again, we talked about fertility or affect my child or affect something. I think the fear is that this vaccine is going to be in your body for years and years and that it could, you know, affect your child or affect your health. The science behind the vaccine is new. The ability to produce the vaccine so rapidly is new. Now, unfortunately, this vaccine is directed against the coronavirus. And the coronavirus is the class of viruses that give us all colds each year. And the coronavirus rapidly mutates. Mm-hmm. So we may need a booster shot in a year to address this. We really can't predict the future. Hopefully, we'll get the majority of people in this country and across the world vaccinated, so we'll eliminate the virus that way. But if we're not able to do that, we're going to have to keep continuing to fight it with repeat doses of the vaccine. 
Yeah, the other thing I wanted to emphasize, which we've talked about before on this podcast, is that mRNA vaccine technology has been around for about 10 years. Um, and so over a decade. So the technology itself is not not relatively new. It's just because we have this novel coronavirus. And so it was um, produced uh, within the last year. And then the other thing, too, is the adenovector um, vi- um, vaccines, which would be like the AstraZeneca or the Johnson & Johnson, you know, those do not have MR- mRNA in it. Um, and that technology has also been around you know, quite a bit longer. So I think, you know, vaccines have been around for a really, really long time, and they've proven to be helpful uh, and protective. And so if you're scared and worried about getting the COVID vaccine, I suggest having a conversation with your doctor to really go through all of your concerns, because it really is life or death with this virus. All right, so we tackled the COVID vaccine and the other two major vaccines that you think are helpful in pregnancy. So we talked about pre-pregnancy, you know, you're pregnant and you've had your shared decision-making. Now, you know, and you've gotten all your vaccines and now you have had your baby, okay? Um, The birth process. So what I see a lot is a lot of women are like, I want to go El Naturel. I don't want any pain medicine. Um, I just want a normal, you know, spontaneous vaginal delivery. Um, but then as they get closer to the actual, you know, due date, they suddenly can't see their feet anymore. The back hurts and they're tired and they start nudging like, okay, can we get this baby out already? Um, what are your thoughts about um, induction and, you know, having babies prior to 40 weeks, and then we can also get into thoughts about C-section or planned C-sections. Well, that's a big topic to discuss, and I'm happy to tackle it. Ideally, we want every woman who can to have a vaginal delivery. That is the way nature designed it. Mm -hmm. In the early 1970s, the cesarean section rate was 1% to 3%. By the 1980s, we thought it skyrocketed because it was close to 10%. Wow. Some hospitals in this country, it's over 45 to 50 percent. 45 to 50 We think the overall rate should be somewhere around 15 percent. Now, there are some babies that should be born by cesarean section. Uh, There are women who've had surgery in their uterus. It's not safe for them to go into labor. Mm -hmm. There are women who have infections that would put the baby at risk if they had a vaginal delivery. Um, Sometimes the baby's in the wrong position. It's presenting sideways instead of head first, Uh, maybe presenting breech with feet first. And if facilities aren't prepared, it's uncommon now to deliver babies breech, so cesarean is normally recommended. But with cesarean section comes a risk. It's a major operation. Mm -hmm. It requires either a regional anesthesia, like an epidural or a spinal anesthetic, or in some infrequent uh, situations, it requires a general anesthetic, which also puts the baby to sleep as well as the mother. With any operation, there's the risk of infection. There's a risk of significant bleeding, much more bleeding than we normally see with a vaginal delivery. And there's also the risk of injury to the bladder, the intestines, other organs within inside the body. The recovery is longer, mm-hmm. uh, both within the hospital and once you're at home. Uh, the delay in recovery can be many, many weeks. We also know that if a woman has repetitive cesarean sections through the same scar or even through a new scar in the skin in the uterus, that the risk of the placenta misbehaving increases. What do I mean by misbehaving? Well, the placenta is our best friend when we have a pregnancy. It is the organ for the baby that attaches to the mother's uterus, to the inner lining, 
and is able to procure all the nutrients and water and oxygen that the growing baby needs. Now, if the placenta doesn't encounter a healthy lining of the uterus because of a significant scar from previous surgery, there's no problem. The placenta grows right through the scar in search of healthy tissues because it grows like a cancer. It's dedicated, it's passionate about providing the oxygen, the water, and the nutrition for its baby. So it remains our friend, which is fine until we deliver the baby. Now we have a placenta that's not a regular placenta, it's a cancer. And this situation can result in massive hemorrhaging, massive blood loss that requires transfusions, and more surgery. Women will often lose their uterus, pieces of their bladder, intestine. It's very serious. In some situations, women lose their life, all because of cesarean section. So cesarean section can save the life of the mother. It can save the life of the baby. But we have to be very, very careful with the use of cesarean section. Yeah, so if it's an absolute necessity, like no one should feel guilty that they had a C-section. But at the same time, if you don't really require one, probably really shouldn't be pushing for one either. No. There are people who come to the doctor and ask for what we call an elective cesarean section. And there are situations where that's a very reasonable concern and the woman's request should be honored. She may have had medical problems in the past or perhaps surgeries where having a vaginal delivery would really not be a very good idea and a cesarean section would be fine, especially if she's not planning on having a large family, or many more children. Because again, each time she has a cesarean, her risk of this abnormal placentation increases. Um, Can we talk quickly about what are some of the major indications for C-section? Like maybe if you have gestational diabetes or the child's very large, just make one or two or three things that people would think like, okay, maybe I will end up with a C-section. Well, in the case of a woman having her first C-section, the number one reason is what we call labor dystocia, where she is in labor, and despite all the tricks, she can't reach complete dilation. Her cervix will not dilate to 10 centimeters, so she cannot try to push the baby out. That's the number one cause. The number two cause is what we call non-reassuring fetal status, meaning we're concerned about the safety of the baby. Mm -hmm. We will frequently monitor the baby's heart rate, either continuously or intermittently during labor. If we're concerned about the baby, we will monitor continuously rather than intermittently. And if the baby does not behave in a healthy fashion, by the way, we're recording its heartbeat, you have to make that tough decision sometimes to deliver the baby. Other conditions I mentioned before, there can be we call malpresentation. The baby's not coming out in the head first position. It's coming out feet first or sideways. Mm -hmm. Again, there are some infections. Now, unfortunately, About 17% 17 of babies are born primarily by a cesarean section, and 15% or more are born just because the woman had a cesarean section before. Mm. Now, the majority of women can be offered what we call a trial of labor in her second pregnancy following a cesarean section. That's a very safe procedure where the risk of there being a significant injury to the uterus is less than one half percent. But this needs to be performed in a hospital that can, if necessary, perform a second cesarean section quickly. With shared decision-making, do you find that – so, you know, you were mentioning how the rates of C-sections went up. You know, what are the reasons for the rate of C-section going up? Do you think it is part of shared decision-making, or do you think shared decision-making actually decreases uh, C-section rates? 
Ideally, shared decision-making will decrease the cesarean section rate. Many patients will come in and request before labor or during labor. Labor can be very frustrating. It can take hours. It can take days. The baby will sometimes give us concern, so we perform maneuvers such as starting IVs and having the mother change her position quick, frequently. And many women say, I'm so scared, I just want a cesarean section. But with shared decision-making, you can educate the patient, reassure her, and say, no, it's safer, it's better in your best interest to continue. Mm -hmm. But again, she can say, no, I refuse. I really want you to do this. And we have to respect that as well. But why are we seeing more? A variety of reasons. The average woman giving birth today is older. Mm -hmm. Each year, it goes up quite a bit. We have more what we call comorbidities, women have more medical problems. They're older. And the older you get, personally speaking, the more medical problems you have. So we see much more high blood pressure. We see much more diabetes. We see more obesity. And -hmm. these factors contribute to cesarean section. The ability to do cesarean section, quite frankly, has led to the increase in cesarean section. The fact that to have a cesarean section today is actually much safer than it was 40 years ago. We're much better at surgery or much better at controlling infection. We have the availability of blood banks at most hospitals now, so women aren't quite the same risk of having the major operation. So there's been a kind of a relaxation of the approach of physicians and patients towards this significant surgical intervention. Yeah, I think it's so funny when I talk to people who've had C-sections, it's like, yeah, I had a C-section, and it's like, it's a major surgery. And I think a lot of people forget that, um, that, you know, if you're going in to get your gallbladder removed or you're going in for other kind of surgery, it's like you have a recovery time. Um, And imagine, you know, having a major surgery and then having to take care of a newborn (laughs) on top of that, and your body's going through all these changes. So, I mean, it's it's a lot to deal with. and then the other thing I was thinking of discussing a little bit is about um, some of the new guidelines in terms of induction. Um, can we talk about that? Certainly. You know, for many years, we taught, myself included as an educator, taught what we had been taught, that if you induce labor, there's going to be a higher risk of cesarean section. The reason for that was, in the past, we tried to be scientific and examine the problem. We looked at women who were induced compared to women at the same stage in pregnancy who entered labor spontaneously. Well, to no surprise, the women who entered the hospital spontaneously in labor had shorter labors and had a lower chance of cesarean section compared to the women who came in in early labor or were induced. But again, you're comparing apples to oranges. Mm -hmm. So a study was done in 2018 called the ARRIVE trial, led by Dr. William Grobman at Northwestern. And it was a very large study, extremely well performed. And what they found is if they have, if a woman is pregnant for the first time and is 39 weeks along in pregnancy, which is one week before her due date, if she's induced, she actually has a much less risk of having a cesarean section compared to an identical woman who isn't induced for the next two weeks. Mm-hmm. And what we find is the risk of complications that we see at the end of pregnancy are avoided. So as scary as it might seem to be to be induced, it actually can be quite a safe thing to do. Again, that comes back to shared decision-making. It's, it's 
difficult concept even for many physicians and midwives to understand. Yeah, I think I think that's phenomenal because a lot of people don't know that that at 39 weeks you can have a discussion or you know prior about possibly being induced because uh, like you said the traditional way was wait till the baby's ready to come out and most people just want to go nuts by that time. <laughs> it's like <laughs> get this baby out. <laughs> so, um, in terms of shared decision making, are there any tools or resources that you know um, a woman could check out, or you know families can check out to to sort of get their wrap their their minds around it? Fortunately, yes. I'm pleased to say that this is a great topic. I was participating in a conference this morning, mm-hmm. and the primary focus of the conference was just this topic: shared decision making. But you can go to Wikipedia. They have an outstanding description of the history and uh, definition of shared decision-making. But again, finding that provider mm-hmm. who will listen to you and treat you with respect and, most importantly, listen to what you have to say, that's really the key to having the success with shared decision-making. Yeah, and I think shared decision-making is something that is used not only for pregnancy. It's for for everything in your health. And so it's something to really think about, look into, and then start having those conversations with your doctor. Um, and then hopefully when you're ready to have a baby, you find a, an OBGYN or a midwife that uh, will also do the same. Let's talk a little bit about breastfeeding. And, you know, a lot of people, they'll try and then they give up. Other people are like, not happening, not doing it. Uh, what do you see in your practice and what's your advice in terms of breastfeeding? I'm so glad you brought that up. Breastfeeding is something I believe is important to discuss long before it's time to breastfeed. Mm -hmm. I start talking about breastfeeding once we've confirmed that the pregnancy is healthy and is going to stick around. Early on, huh? Very early on. Because there's, again, a lot of misconceptions about it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that baby formula, after all, it's scientifically prepared, is just as good as breast milk. Mm -hmm. And that's what the manufacturers would want you to believe. But it's not true. Uh, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists is extremely passionate about encouraging women to be exclusive breastfeeders for the first six months of the baby's life and then having a combination breastfeeding and offering of foods for the second six months of life. And it just doesn't happen. People think, well, I'm a woman, I have breasts, the baby will come out and I will breastfeed and it will be, just be wonderful. Mm-hmm. It can be. It can also be the most challenging, difficult, painful, scary, frightening experience a woman has after surviving childbirth. Yeah, it's traumatizing. And it just doesn't happen naturally. There are skills. You have to let your body adapt slowly. If you decide to become a marathon runner, you don't go barefoot and run a marathon the first day. You work into it very slowly. You prepare. Mm -hmm. You protect your skin. You wear shoes. In breastfeeding, you make sure your skin remains moisturized and that you don't overnurse. Women often think because they love their baby so much, they'll put the baby on the breast for half an hour. Mm-hmm. Well, at first, the baby gets the initial milk, what we call colostrum, in five minutes on each side. And when the milk is fully engorged, really 20 to 30 minutes is an awful lot of time on mm-hmm. either side. And unfortunately, the skin will wear down. And if breastfeeding experience starts out poorly, women are much more likely to stop. And that's uh, bad for the baby because we think there's nothing more nutritious, especially when it comes to passing on those antibodies we talked about before. Mm-hmm. But also women are challenged emotionally afterwards. They're disappointed in themselves, frustrated, and often afraid to try again with a second child. Yeah. And we want to avoid that as much as possible. 
I had a really uh, close friend of mine and, and she had her baby and I went to go visit her. And I remember like I walked in and she's like, okay, everyone, uh, Asha's a doctor. Everyone get out. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? And then she just looks at me and goes, help. I don't know how to breastfeed a baby. Like it's not working. I tried the, you know, the football, like, you know, hold. I tried this. I tried that. And I said, well, did you ask, um, you know, to have a, you know, a, a breastfeeding consultation. And, and it was just one of those things that I think, um, if, especially if it's your first child, people just assume that baby comes out and you are just already a mom and you know what you're doing. And I think there's a lot of coaching that needs to be involved. And I think the more we talk about it and the more, um, you know, we ask questions, we can kind of be more successful because the worst thing is thinking, I'm supposed to know how to do this. And it's like, I don't think anyone is programmed, you know, to be a mother. <laughs> it's like something that is learned. That's absolutely right. And at the hospital, we have professionals, lactation mm-hmm. specialists who work with women. Uh, the physicians, the labor and delivery nurses, everyone wants the woman to be successful. One thing I do hear from a lot of my friends, so, you know, most of uh, my friends are, you know, working mothers and they are tend to be the ones that have babies later. And they say, I just, I can't do the breastfeeding with work. And in addition to that, my significant other needs to also feed the baby too. It's not just going to be on me. What is your advice there? Well, again, plan ahead. <laughs> Get as much help as you can. Now, with breastfeeding, you know, the significant other can't actually perform the physical act, but can be very supportive with everything else. Mm-hmm. It takes a team. Well, what I also say, too, to, to some of my friends is you can pump um, and they can help with that. What are your thoughts about, you know, pumping and then, you know, get, delivering it that way? When when necessary, pumping is a wonderful thing. The milk can be stored for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. But uh, some babies do initially have what we call nipple confusion uh, yeah, okay. because um, they have to work to get milk from the breast. And when they get milk from a bottle, they just open their mouth and guzzle away. So they often get a little lazy. Yeah, and I think that's another misconception is they'll say the baby like it, it's easier or it's better for the baby because clearly the baby doesn't want my <laughs> doesn't want my milk, you know. But it's like we got to sort of train uh, and go from there. So. Any last thoughts that you'd like to add? I can't emphasize enough the importance of everyone getting their COVID vaccination. We all need to work on this together. And without a team effort, we're not going to be successful. Yeah, I think that's super important. I think, again, um, you know, you're an OBGYN, you're a leader in the field. And I think we just need to really talk to trusted messengers and the messages get vaccinated. Um, COVID vaccine is safe in pregnancy. Dr. Wharton, I think we're kind of out of time, and I know we could talk about a lot of other things. Maybe we'll do a podcast soon about you know post delivery and and all sorts of things about you know the first year of life. You've just been a wealth of knowledge, and I was just glued to like everything you had to say. Uh, so thanks so much for being with us today. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I also want to remind you to send along any questions or suggestions to podcast at beaumont.org. We're always scouting out for the best questions for our future mailbag episode. You also might want to check out uh, some of our other podcasts around um, pregnancy. One is infertility, and another one is about the fourth trimester. We leave you today with this healthy thought. Pregnancy and childbirth can be overwhelming, especially during a pandemic, but it doesn't have to be. Think about how you can prepare for your pregnancy and plan for your childbirth. 
Dr. Wharton recommends the COVID-19 vaccine during pregnancy, before pregnancy, and even after. It's safe, and there's no evidence of it impacting your fertility or hurting your baby. You want everything to be perfect for this beautiful baby that's on the way. And with things so scary in the world right now, shared decision-making is more important than ever before. Dr. Wharton shared so many important tips about shared decision-making. Know that you can work together with your clinician to make evidence-based decisions based on your preferences and guided by your values. This is what shared decision-making is all about and why it's so important to participate in it. And when you're holding that healthy baby in your arms, you'll be so glad that you did. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit Beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.